is that is the the singular most prevalent lesson I have learned from ultra running is what happens when things get really hard. Anyone who's gone for a run, you've gotten to that point where it's everything hurts. You're not having fun anymore. You're dehydrated. You're every every logical thing points towards you should stop. But if you willfully refuse to stop as long as we're not, you know, working on any long-term damage, as long as you can willfully refuse to quit, that's when the magic happens because it turns out that cramp in your leg probably goes away. It turns out you can drink and your dehydration goes away. You can have some sugar and your mood is transformed because now your blood sugar is at a, a healthy level. And you realize that all those things are temporary. So then when you you hit that wall and you're miserable, and, you know, there's no reason to keep going. You just have to remember that like, well, just do it anyway. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And it just it's consistent through everything in life. Like it has, it has benefited me in so many different arenas to like not stop just because something gets tough. Like that's when it gets good. And that's what sets you apart from everybody else because everybody else is going to quit at that point. Everybody, any, any reasonable person would quit when you reach that point, whether it's running or opening a business or writing a book. That's why films don't get made because people get to that point and they quit because that's what most people would do. And if you can, you know, just stubbornly refuse to be what everyone else is being, that's when you 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 hit the magic sauce. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we're on a mission to create a better world. Part of the way we're going after this mission is by sharing stories on this podcast that showcase the lives of people who are living with purpose, whether they are called to more purpose throughout their life or through sudden pain and loss. And what we found and heard from our listeners is that these stories help us feel connected, okay with what we're feeling or going through, and give us tools to put into action. So we're so grateful to this audience and guests like today's for inspiring countless numbers of people to take positive shifts in their life, because the truth is, this life is just a blip, so why not live in a way that creates a better world inside and out? Our guest today is Jeffrey James Binney, and he encourages us to look at that crazy thing we've always wanted to do and know that this is the time. He reminds us that we only live once and we must make the most of it. Jeffrey is a trail runner, adventure travel host, comedian, and speaker. He is the producer and director of Once is Enough, which is a film that documents his journey from losing his mom to obesity-caused heart disease to stepping onto the starting line of the world's most difficult 100-mile ultramarathon. This vegan son of a pig farmer has loved adventure from a very early age, and this film brings it all together, the inspiration, the loss, pain, exhaustion, failure, and triumph of life. Once is enough is a must-see. We're so pumped for this conversation and think we are about to have a blast. So thanks for everyone who is along with us, and Jeffrey James Binney, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I wish... uh... You could introduce me every time I walk into a room. That was lovely. Oh, I'll go on tour with you. That would be super fun. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, oh, man. Where are we going to start? Well, we've been binging uh, your movie and, and, um, and your background, but I think, I think an important piece is, um, is your mom. So maybe tell us about your mom and how, how she influenced you to where you are today coming to us from where you are. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I grew up on a pig farm in rural Missouri, um, pretty typical farm family. Uh, when I was 11, my mom was diagnosed with heart failure and, you know, they, they, they only gave her, you know, probably a few years to live, but she pulled out 17, 18 more, something like that. Um, and, you know, of course, as a kid, I didn't know that, it was that serious, you know, it's maybe not something that you tell a, a 11 year old. Um, but now looking back, I realize how lucky we were to have her for so much more, more time. And, uh, she, she knew that too. Uh, and I now like as an adult can look back I, and I can see how she lived very purposefully once she got her diagnosis. Um, 
she was always like super philanthropic and lovely and she was very social. Everyone in town knew her. So she was always that person, but she just like ramped it up into overdrive because she had, you know, she had some warning. <laughs> she had, uh, she had a reason to, to, to seize the moment. And so it just taught me a huge lesson of like, hey, like, <laughs> I can't wait until, you know, I get diagnosed with heart failure to start living the way I want to. So let's do it right flipping now. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm laser focused on. Number one, making the outdoor space more inclusive and diverse, getting more people outside and making sure that people aren't putting that off. Like, do not put off living life. Do it right now. Mm. And that lesson came straight from her. That we get too comfortable, right? We get super comfortable in the, in our patterns and routines, oh. and then we're like, "Well, I've done enough. Enough. This is enough. Like it's it's okay." Well, yeah, and and we'll do it next week. Like we'll do it next month once those other things are in order, and once I'm done with this, and once it's convenient, and once this happens, then I'll do it. But that day often never comes. The day is today. Is right now. If it if it, if it really matters to you, if it's really vital for you, if it's really something that like just will heed your soul. Now is the moment. You know, we all say like, oh, I'd love to do that or that. And we don't really mean it. But for those things that like you do really mean, those things that are so connected to your soul, those important things, today's the day. Mm. And you've been interested in adventure for a long time, even as a kid. What were some of the, like the messages growing up? It sounds like your mom was, you know, what took this diagnosis and lived very purposefully for the years that she had left, which were several. Um, but even before that, she seems like she was a pretty special lady, um, a friend to everyone. And what were some of the messages that you grew up around, like that afforded you this adventurous spirit and, you know, going after things? Well, it's a lot of things. I think, you know, the first thing that has to be pointed out is that I was so lucky to um, grow up in uh, rural America as a white man with parents who told him that he could do (laughs) anything he wanted. And like, this is what happens (laughs) when you do that with your kids. Blind support, you end up for better or worse, you end up with a Jeffrey. This is what happens. And, you know, as a kid, I was never, I was the worst farm boy. I was an indoor kid. I wasn't athletic. I didn't like, I just, I did not fit in. But, you know, my family was uh, upper middle class. We were one of the more financially comfortable families in the, in the, in the county. Uh, My, my mom was well known. So we, we knew everybody and just all these things put me in this environment to grow up where I, 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 felt like I could do whatever I wanted and I could, like I I truly had those resources. I was so infinitely lucky, but I was not an outdoor kid. I was not an athlete. And I had kind of just accepted that. Like, that's okay. That's, I was, I was pursuing theater. Like that's, that was fine. It wasn't like, Oh, I feel like I've been, you know, pigeonholed into being the, the, the funny gay theater kid. Like that's what I liked and that's what I was. And so it was okay. But you know, after I lost my mom, I realized that I, well, I just desperately wanted to avoid the same fate. And I discovered running, which quickly escalated into ultra running. And, you know, I looked back at my childhood and I was like, this is so weird. Like, this is so weird. How did I end up like being obsessed with this and doing this and wanting to go sleep on a rock in the mountains overnight alone, like after running 20 miles and then get up at you know, just all these things I couldn't compute. I was like, how did I end up? here (laughs) and how did I not know but then I look back at my childhood and like although I was you know like doing one-man versions of cats in my parents bay window I was also spending so much time outside like I, I mean I was I was like playing with my mom's baton and and building roller coasters I mean I wasn't exactly doing like typical masculine boy outdoor things but I was outside all the time And I also was obsessed as a little kid with adventure. I wanted to be an astronaut from the time I was, I don't know, whenever people started asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I think it's because that's like, you know, as a kid, like that's the the final frontier or the current final frontier. You know, I think hundreds of years ago, what it must have been like to think about 
you know, hopping on a boat and, and just trying to go to America, whatever that was. I mean, that's, you know, the space is our version of that now. And I think that's why I was so obsessed with it. And I was really obsessed with Lewis and Clark. <laughs> uh, I am a self-proclaimed armchair Lewis and Clark expert. So if you have any burning Lewis and Clark <laughs> questions, uh, I'm your guy. But it's just, it's just the, you know, again, like, I can't imagine, like, doing that. Like, no white American had, European had, had been over there. And so what an adventure. And it's just the best story that so few people know. Um, so anyway, you asked me a simple question. I gave you a pretty complicated answer. But I have been a, a obsessed with adventure in some sort since I was a little kid. And I think it's part of the reason why I pursued the arts. Because that was adventurous for a farm boy. That seemed... Uh, unattainable. It seemed like a crazy idea. Um, so that's, I, I, I saw something shiny. <laughs> I don't remember what I'm saying, but I have been obsessed with adventure with when I, since I was a little kid. So it's not, it's not super surprising that I am, 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 am doing that now. It's just a, a different variety of adventure than when I was a little kid. All right. So being a self-proclaimed Lewis and Clark expert, what did you learn from their story that you've taken away and maybe has helped you in the adventures in your life? Mm. It's something they did really well. Yeah. Well, one of the like coolest facts, uh, I, I think about Lewis and Clark, uh, and it's, it's, it's complicated. There's more to the story than I, that I'm going to tell you. But one thing that I do think is really cool. Lewis and Clark were incredible leaders like, above all, the reason it was successful was because they were amazing leaders. And actually, you're going to get me started. I don't know. <laughs> Be careful. You're going to have to shut me down. <laughs> Meriwether Lewis was asked by Thomas Jefferson to do this. He solely was asked to lead the, the expedition. But he, um, you know, now we can look back and we can say, like, he was probably manic depressive. Um, he had mental health issues, and he knew this. And so he asked his uh, former buddy from, from his military days, um, William Clark, to come uh, lead it with him. And he agreed, and Thomas Jefferson said, sure, fine. Um, and the entire expedition, the entire crew that were with them, thought uh, that they were equal leaders, saw them as equal leaders, treated them as equal leaders, they behaved as equal leaders, but they weren't. Um, they weren't. Uh, Meriwether Lewis at any time could have said, no, this is what we're doing because this is the decision I made. So I think that's like, I think that's really, um, I don't know, I love that like self-awareness that he had. Um, and, 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 and it was correct. You know, there were since there's periods in his journals where there's just nothing. And it's possible some of them got lost, but there's really good reason to believe that he had some periods on the journey where he didn't feel like writing and was reclusive. He, um, a lot of times while they were on the rivers, the whole crew would be on the river and he would go off and he would journey through the forest. Um, he was, you know, they were taking lots of specimens and things. So it wasn't, I mean, it was purposeful, but he spent a lot of time alone. Um, uh, Sakagawea, you might know her as Sacagawea. That's not the proper way to say it. Um, <laughs> she was a uh, indigenous woman who she had been kidnapped as a kid and and, and married a, a French fur trader and ended up on the expedition as a translator. And then there was uh, a, a guy named York. Uh, he was one of William Clark's slaves. He was his. Uh, like like right hand man. Um, so the the expedition had had York and Sacagawea uh, on the uh, on the trip. York every time they would meet a new indigenous group was like the just the star of the show. Like people, you know, he he was huge. He was so he was super tall and muscular, and they had never seen a, a black person before. And he was such a novelty, and he was so instrumental to the entire journey. And same for Sakagawea. She had a six-month-old baby on her back the entire time. And the point of this story is whenever they made a decision, uh, everyone voted. Lewis and Clark, they did not demand, oh, no, this is what we're doing. They made no decrees. Everything that became a difficult decision was a group decision where everyone would vote. And Sakagawea and York were both included in that. And uh, as far as we know, that is the first time that a black man or an indigenous person or a woman had been given had been given any sort of like equal representation in like literally any arena. 
So I think that's really awesome. Uh, the, the caveat is that, you know, after the expedition, uh, York was not freed. Everyone was like, oh, William Clark, what a great opportunity to repay uh, York for this sacrifice by giving him his freedom. And he didn't. Uh, and that's complicated and, and disappointing. But uh, nonetheless, I do, I do think the, the first part, I think that's what I love is their leadership style. It was so equitable. Yeah, like every everybody wins. You know, I used to teach at this yoga studio back in, in Rhode Island, and I remember when they were talking about, like, how much they paid the teachers, they said, every decision we make, we think about how is this going to be the best for the teachers, the students, the person who's dropping off the towels from the cleaning service? Like, how can everybody benefit from this decision in the best way possible, where it's like people aren't compromising, but it's for the good of all? And, uh, and that's fantastic. And if you look at an ultra marathon, especially the distances that you've, you've gone, like you need a crew and it's not just you, like it's this whole community and everybody is out there sacrificing, um, to get, you know, you across the finish line and you're sacrificing as well, but to carry that into these kinds of expeditions of modern day. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's an abundance mindset is what it is. Absolutely. And that's why I love ultra running. Every, every single run is an adventure. I'm not in a gym with, with fluorescent lighting on a treadmill, running in place, watching the news. I'm going somewhere. I'm seeing some shit. I'm seeing some stuff. I might get hurt. There's an element of danger. It just, it's, it's, I just absolutely adore it. And, you know, for that adventurous reason. So how did you, uh, how'd you get into it? How'd you get into running? Well, uh, my mom's decline was kind of long. Uh, for about a year, she was in and out of the hospital. And then the last three months she spent in, in an ICU, which meant that I lived in an ICU waiting room essentially for three months. And I kept picking up a uh, trail runner magazine. Uh, you know, the, the, the hospital had subscriptions to all these, what I thought were very obscure magazines. I, I remember pointing it out to my aunt and being like, there's a magazine about people who like run a long ways. Like I, who's buying this? Like, is this something people really do and pay for? <laughs> I thought it was so silly, but I kept picking it up and it just sounded so adventurous and it just was the wheels were turning and I had gotten into I was living in New York City at the time and I had gotten into cycling just as a commuter cyclist around New York um and I on a particularly bad hospital day we got just the worst news I just went to a running store and bought a pair of shoes and went and found a trail and rage ran <laughs> and I was immediately I was immediately hooked like immediately I mean first of all I felt like a little kid I was like literally jumping over logs I was playing in the mud like how fun um second of all nobody was timing me nobody was watching my fat jiggle it was just me I was literally in the middle of nowhere like doing whatever the crap I wanted like there was no pressure there was no run this far run this fast or you know, there's just none of that uh, and then the biggest thing for, you know, those 30 minutes, I didn't think about my problems. For those 30 minutes, like, life didn't exist. Um, so I was hooked immediately, like, immediately. As I tend to do, I went, you know, just, like, hard and fast. I, I don't typically tiptoe into anything. But that's how it started. Was there any, um, so you went to the waiting room, just backing up to there, you're, you're in the waiting room a lot, like you're sitting in that, in that seat. What are you seeing as people, were you aware of this like community that's coming in and out and, and maybe some people aren't coming out, like you're seeing the state of people, did that have any influence over this desire to make change? And I want to, I want to talk about change, but did it have any, did it incite anything in, in, inside of you to, that there's got to be another way? Well, you know, my mom's doctors made no question about why she was in the position she was in. It was lifestyle, um, heart disease, mild heart disease ran in her family, but what she was dealing with did not, was not hereditary. It was, they were lifestyle choices. And, um, you know, especially food, food was really tough for her. She, uh, her, her life was, she's the, the business manager for my dad's farm uh, and she also uh, cooked for all of my dad's employees. So, uh, you know, when we were during harvest or when we were planting in the spring, 
you know, at 9 a.m., she would start cooking. At 11, she'd go be driving these meals, like, all over the county to wherever everyone was. Same thing in the evening. And, like, that was her identity and what she did. She was an amazing cook. But, you know, the, the, the culture of, of cooking, in rural Missouri at least, is not always helpful. You know, she, she, she tried so hard to, like, figure out nutrition. But even basic things like... You know, I, I mean, I joke about it, but she she literally fried asparagus one time, and it was delicious. But she could not really understand why my sister and I were trying to explain that that wasn't that wasn't a healthy <laughs> wasn't a healthy option. I mean, yeah, we're getting a vegetable, but you know, there's all these. Gosh, how much did I hate like eighth grade uh, health and nutrition class? But now, as an adult, especially seeing her, I realize that I had all of this basic nutrition knowledge that her generation just didn't necessarily get. And she just, she just couldn't, she couldn't make the changes. So, you know, I knew exactly why it happened. And I was, I was plowing down the same railroad tracks, the exact same railroad tracks. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's not very many motivators uh, better than death. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful one. And, and you, you immediately, you just immediately made change. Like you bought the sneakers, got out and you ran and you ra- maybe rage, rage run as you, as you call it, just like got out there. But how, uh, how do you see, like, I see that as like, Oh, you just took action because you know, it had, it had just gotten bad enough. Like in, and you wanted to get out there and make change. But how do, how do other people, or, or maybe in your experience, how do you see them butt up against those moments of possibly making change? And yet they fall back on, on something that is known or, or they want the desire so much, but they just don't know how to do it. It seems like you don't get caught up in the how you're just like beelining it for that change. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are trade-offs to my style. Uh, I, you know, I end up places unprepared. I end up, you know, underestimating how difficult things are. Um, so, you know, my, my way is not the only way. (laughs) Um, but, I, you know, I think it comes down to fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And I, that's, that's a really complicated topic. And I don't really know, you know, I don't know how to, to change that in adults. There's, there's a really interesting study that was done, I think, a few decades ago. But they took these two elementary school classrooms. And in one classroom... They very purposefully rewarded natural talent. So they would reward people who, you know, if you did great the first time, like awesome, they'd verbally reward that. And they spent a whole year like taking that approach. The other classroom, they rewarded growth. So they rewarded effort. So, you know, in the first classroom, they were saying like, oh my gosh, you got that on the first try. Incredible. Congratulations. In the other room, they were saying, oh my gosh, you improved so much from yesterday. Congratulations. And that's who they were lifting up and supporting. Guess whose who's, who's, who's scores were higher at the end of the year? The, the growth mindset classroom, like by far. Um, so, you know, there's lots of really good ways to instill that in our children. It's a little bit harder as an adult to, to change that. You know, if, 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 if anyone's not familiar with fixed versus growth mindset, some of the fixed mindset feels like, you know, the skills that they currently have are probably kind of what they're capable of. They can acquire some new things, but that's kind of what you're equipped to do. So, you know, if you're like, oh, I would love to do that, but I don't know how, or I I probably couldn't do that. Someone with a fixed mindset, I mean, even, you know, like I I have a debilitating (laughs) uh, growth mindset where I like foolishly just think I can probably do whatever I try to do. I'll figure it out. Like I can make it happen. Again, there are, there are downsides to that. But I, you know, that's 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 the difference. Is is there are people who who have that gate that says oh, I, I'm not cut out for that, or I'm too chubby for that, or I'm not there. So you know, the the, the key is realizing that you can get there. Everybody can change. Everybody uh, everybody can change. Everyone can develop a growth mindset. Uh, it's just hard. That's, you know, it's easy to say it's, it's a little bit harder to do. Yeah. I mean, cause you really need to cultivate it. You need to lean into this completely different mindset, which says all things are possible and knowing that you're going to learn along the way, like you're going to learn if you hold yourself back or you're going to learn if you jump 
and go all in. Like you're going to learn either way. And I think the growth mindset accepts that, okay, I'm going all in. I'm going to go to the Leadville 100 because that for whatever reason makes sense. And so we'll talk about that because, but I know I'm going to learn along the way. And it sounds to me like your growth mindset is what got you registered for that Leadville 100, which is, you know, arguably one of the hardest, if not the hardest hundred in the world. Nothing motivates me more than somebody telling me I can't do something. Mm. And I, uh, you know, I, I also, again, have to point out that um, it also depends on external factors. You know, uh, uh, I, you know, again, I, I grew up as a, a privileged uh white guy in rural Missouri. And I had all the resources at my fingertips. I, my family had the financial resources to get me music teachers and dance lessons and everything that I could have possibly needed. Um, along again with telling me, Hey, what do you want to do? Like, yeah, do it. You know, and, 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 and I have to like, give my, my parents, especially my dad, so much credit because, uh, there's a, there's a way of life in rural American farming families, and that way of life is that you pass your farm on to your kids. Uh, legacy farms, farms in my area have been in families for you know a few hundred years, which is a long time in this country. And there's not, not very many bigger offenses you could commit than selling off your family's land, letting your land leave your family. And so, you know, I'm sure there was some level of disappointment, but my dad never, never, never was like, no, you're not going to study musical theater. You're not going to move to New York. That's great. Like, I never, never, like for a 72-year-old white man who has never lived more than five miles from the house he was brought home from the hospital to, that's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like... There's a whole level of, like, there's no resistance, right? Like, from from these figures in your life that are raising you, feeding you, clothing you. Um, and the acceptance that your dad gave to you and, the, and a bigger acceptance of what he thought, you know, probably his, his life was going to be like even many years ago before you even came into the picture, like that just completely takes a whole level of resistance away. You don't have to get around the family stuff. And I think that that's, that can be a really big one. Um, whether it's, uh, somebody wanting to do an Ironman or an ultra marathon or, or marriage that's just not working. And, but they, they stay and they do the thing that, you know, fills the groove as opposed to going against the grain, which is what you did. And so my question is, you know, this honor of passing along the farm and having it stay in the family and all of that. Now you're going against the grain. Did you ever need to work through any kind of like guilt or like, even though your parents were like, go, 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 like do your thing and be who you are. Were you like, Oh, I should be doing this other thing. Uh, no, partly because I have a sister who's eight years older than me and she lives in Missouri, uh, near my dad's farm. She is his office manager now. Uh, and they have a, uh, a drone uh, spraying and planting company. They use drones to like spray herbicides and pesticides and things on field. And they also grow uh, organic pork. Um, so she's still there. The farm, my, my nephews are into farming. So it is going to stay in the family. So again, yet another luxury I have is that, you know, she kind of, in some ways we kind of switched stereotypical gender roles because she was an undercover narcotics cop for a while. And now she's like a a farmer. And, you know, I went off to New York city to flit about on stage doing musical theater. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk a little about your nutrition too, um, because you do, you know, present yourself as plant-based and coming from, you know, a very Southern, you know, Missouri type of cuisine. When did you start to, you know, break out of that and step more into using plants to, to fuel your life? Well, it started as a dare, a friend from college who was vegetarian, uh, loved to engage me in conversations about it because he knew that I had grown up on a pig farm and I didn't care one way or the other. I mean, I was definitely a meat eater. I wasn't really invested in the conversation, 
but I love to push buttons. So I would, I would entertain his, his discussions all day long. And he dared me, he said, I bet you can't do the PETA 30-day challenge, which at the time, PETA, you know, if you signed up, they would send you an information packet on, on, on why and how to, to go vegetarian. Um, and I was like, yeah, I can. So I did it. And like within a few days, it just like clicked. It just, uh, first of all, I started doing so much research because I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it in a healthful way. And the more I learned, uh, which I've used this in so many different parts of my life now, but the more I learned about nutrition, when I knew what was in asparagus and what it did to my body, I had hated asparagus. And suddenly that knowledge was like, oh, asparagus isn't that bad, actually. And I ended up loving it. Same with broccoli, like all this stuff. Like when I had knowledge about what was actually in the food, I, it's totally changed my mind and, and, and preference. And I also didn't miss meat nearly as much as I thought I would, almost not at all. And then I look back at my childhood and it all makes sense. Like hunting is integral in farming families. I never, I have never been hunting with my dad, uh, ever. Like even as a child, I refused, I refused to go. I loved the tracking part of it, but I hated the murder part of it. Same with the farm. I loved helping my dad in the field. I loved like planting and harvesting. I loved all that stuff. But as soon as we had to go castrate 3,000 pigs and give them a bunch of, uh, you know, shots and wring their noses, I hated it. I, I hated it. And I was obsessed with our farm cats. I, I, I think the hardest I've ever cried, except for when I lost my mom, was when a kitten that had gotten lost came back home. I remember I just, like, lost it. So it just, it, like, it all made sense. But I just grew up on a pig farm. So, like, vegetarianism was never even presented as an option. But once I tried it, it just, it worked for me. I liked it. And I looked back at my life and I was like, I've been a hippie little vegetarian my whole life and had no idea. Oh, I love that. Like, <laughs> natural awesome. born. Yeah, you start to learn, you're like, Insoluble fiber is like the coolest it's thing like a scraper. in the world. This is awesome. <laughs> You're like broccoli's like a broom. What? I know. Exactly. I love that stuff. Well, I think in, environment. I, I grew up in a similar. Uh, I grew up in a household with five children, and it just seemed like the environment was just so strong in the patterns because the you know the, the my mom is making the food all the time and big helpings and with a lot of kids it's easier to buy in bulk and it's easier to get the you know less expensive products but when you become aware when you just there's this i think it was school of rock or whatever when it was like knowledge is power you know we used to watch those cartoons like knowledge is power it really is like when you begin begin to understand and let's segue to like lewis and clark like when you understand like the story, right? Not just go along with it because someone says it. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I get that. You begin to question and you have this curiosity that maybe there is something to this. But I think the the piece of this is to not force the change, to not say, eat your broccoli, eat your asparagus. Instead, on your own timeline, encourage and support that curiosity so that you begin to make a connection with it. And that dare for you was this key that unlocked, ah, and then you can go back into the history. This is why history is good, not to drag it with us into the present moment, but to, but to really look back and say, okay, well that now it's making sense. I see how I shaped my opinion before and I can see maybe there was an uncovering of maybe who, who I am today. Very powerful. Yeah, it's it's something I think about a lot because I I am just so different than I was even at 22. Like in in all the ways, in in all the ways. Um and so it makes me wonder, you know, I just hit 40 and it makes me it's one of the reasons why I don't have any tattoos because it sounds silly, but I I think about the tattoos I would have gotten as a 22-year-old, and I wouldn't want them on my body now. <laughs> and so I just, I wonder who I'm going to be in 20 years, you know? I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I don't know that I can, I mean, obviously I'm aging. I'm certainly not going to say that 40 is, is old, but I am getting to a point where I'm, I now understand why, why people like, who love getting older love getting older, because we just keep getting better, don't we? 
We, our oh, bodies 100%. fall apart. <laughs> but the rest of us keeps getting better and smarter. 100%. 100%. So, so how do you get into this, like, ultra, like, okay, so you read the magazine, you're into ultra running, your life has totally shifted because you weren't an athletic uh, you weren't curious about you getting into basketball or baseball or any of those things, but now you're like going after like the biggest endurance event that could possibly, you could possibly partake in. So how do you dip your toes in that experience? So I went for that first run and within 24 <laughs> hours I had signed up for a 20 mile trail run in February in Missouri. Um, and my mom ended up passing away, which I don't recommend anybody go from couch to 20 miles in two and a half months is about what I did it. Um, but my mom ended up passing away about a week or two before the race, and I wasn't going to do it. I mean, I missed out on the last couple weeks of training. And kind of at the last minute, I was like, you know what, let's let's go give it a try. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, so if it doesn't work, it doesn't. Like, it's fine. Let's just go try it. And it was awful, but I loved it, and I finished. Uh, barely. Uh, my family was at the finish line, and uh, they were starting to take the finish line down, and the race actually didn't know that I was still out there. They had told my family that I must have finished, and they didn't see me because there was no one left on the course. <laughs> but I was still out there, and a few minutes later, I came, like, you know, limping over the finish line. And... Uh, and and I I just I loved it and so I I set uh, it was a, 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 a over the next year I ended up moving from New York to Los Angeles um, I kept running I kept doing some runs but I had a fifty miler on my radar and I ended up doing the North Face Endurance Challenge outside of San Francisco and that was I, kind of my litmus test because I had had like the seeds had been planted for a hundred miler but I was well aware of how absurd and huge and ridiculous of an idea that was and I didn't want to um, I didn't want to commit to it without having all the information I have had crazy ideas since I was a little kid this is not new for me. I'm constantly, I, I move from one thing to another and I always get the same response, you know, like, like people who aren't dreamers, like don't react well when you say, oh my God, I have this idea. I think I might go do so-and-so. And then you get that like, oh, are you sure? Like, I mean, I, I, I tell the story in my film, but I had a really good friend who was uh, really, she, he is a really experienced triathlete and I was so excited to tell him when I decided to do a hundred miler. And, um, you know, I, I told him the whole the whole story, and he was so he was a little quiet. And finally, he said, "You know, I, I don't want to be rude, Jeffrey, but um, you know, that's a really hard race. And when you go to the horse races, there's a reason why you don't see any Clydesdales there." And he was like, "It's it's it's like give it a try if you want, but do you know what you're getting into? Do you know like?" Uh, and, and not in a like body shaming way, but like, do you know how hard it would be for someone? Do you know how hard it's going to be for you to do that? And yes, I did know. I did know. Anyway, I did the 50 miler as the litmus test. And I was like, you know what? If I can finish 50 milers, uh, 50 miles, if I can survive and if I can still enjoy running, then we'll commit to a hundred miler. I did it. Uh, it was also awful. <laughs> that's the, that's the, my family doesn't understand why I love doing this because on, you know, to them, it looks like, it looks like I'm so miserable and all these, you know, I pass out on trails and you know, all these things happen, but that's why we love it. Like it's, it's, uh, that's why I love it. That is, that is why I love it because it's not easy. That's, that's the, the, the joy for me, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I was, you know, pegged as that, you know, the little gay theater funny kid. Uh, but, you know, it turns out like I'm also a total badass and like nobody is more surprised by that news than me. I didn't know either. But what a fun realization to have. So after the 50 miler, I, I set uh, I had an, the idea for the film. I was really wanting to write my first hour of storytelling slash stand up material. And, you know, it's such a brutal industry. And I was like, I am not, I do not want to wait around for 20 years to like, maybe, maybe Netflix invites me to do this. But, you know, I, just, I was like, I just like, why don't I do it myself? Why don't I make my own work? Why don't I make my own art, my own 
creation. So I had an idea for the film. I was like, well, what if I like captured the whole process of me, like trying to figure out how to run a hundred miles and then wrote an hour of material around that experience, filmed both of them and then slammed them together in some sort of quirky little indie film. And, uh, it's a long story. The short story is a, a green light studio approval and funding fell in my lap, like literally out of nowhere. I, mi- I had like casually mentioned the film to someone who I like, did not, I had no idea had any connections to anything. And within 48 hours, the project had been greenlit, like it was going and I was like, what? And then in two weeks, the, the company ended up getting sold to a Japanese gaming company and the whole thing got shut down. So like it, like, it appeared out of nowhere and then instantly dissolved into the ether. <laughs> so we had to make the decision of like, are we still going to try to figure this out? Are we still going to try to get this done? And most of the people I had started assembling for the project were friends or friends of friends. And uh, everyone was like, yeah, you know what? Like, it sounds like a lot of fun. Like, we'll just, let's just do it. Like, we'll do it for free or for, you know, way under what they should have been paid. And so we got that little, that little indie film made. And that led me to this. Uh, after the film was released, I started focusing a little bit more on social media. And I had a silly video that that went viral a couple years ago. And uh, suddenly ended up with all of these followers and the opportunity to like actually enact some change, uh, to actually get people outside who, who, who didn't think that they could or should go for a hike. Uh, you know, all these opportunities to make the outdoor space more diverse and, in- and inclusive. Um, that's, you know, part of the reason why I'm so passionate about that is because I did have all the opportunities. I had all the resources and not everyone does. Uh, it's, it's, life is not equitable. (laughs) Life, life is not fair. Um, and I have achieved the things that I've achieved because of a lot of privilege and not everybody has that. So that's why I'm like, you know, laser focused on, on, on getting the outdoors, uh, to a, to a, to a, 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 a more diverse and inclusive space. And it is already, especially the trail running community. I don't know if I know any community that's more quirky, open, blindly accepting than the trail running community. That being said, there's still work to do. I mean, there was a runner's world post last week um, about some of the, the race drama in Boston. And uh, if you think that we're done uh, working on diversity, inclusion, acceptance in the running world, that comment thread on that post definitively proves that incorrect. We still have work to do. We're not there. We might be ahead of a lot of other communities, but we're not there yet. No, I mean, and and I think it's an ongoing process and it's going to it's going to have both sides to it, right? And the confused people right in the middle, but you got to keep focused and square on, on what it is that you're doing. And I just like, I never met your mom, but I feel like this is your mom coming through and like, okay, here you are doing this thing. Now make, make this thing better for as many people as you possibly can. And it seems like she was a woman of service who would have absolutely, uh, applauded, you know, where you're taking it. My dad is wonderful too, but Almost every single positive quality that I possess came from her. <laughs> He's lovely too, but I am I am so much like her. I am a lot like her. It's so it's so beautiful. And I really encourage people to see the film because there's so much about it and it does take you through the whole Leadville. Um I was I was on the bike trainer watching it and I cry I like I was crying. I was like, yeah, like I was cheering. I had chills. It was, it was really, really well done, really honest and raw and funny as hell. But there's this one part in the movie and I don't want to give too much away where it's like some kind of celebration. There's some kind of birthday or something. And you pick this card out of a basket and you show your mom. And I'm assuming it's the card maybe that you gave her (laughs) that you want to like, did you see how good the card is? I gave you, I don't know, but she looks up at you and she smiles. You guys are looking at each other, but then you walk away 
and she kind of looks back over and, and, and looks towards you. And the amount of love that you can feel in that moment for what she had for you, um, you just feel this really strong bond uh, between the two of you. Yeah. Um, so I found out later as an adult, uh, my parents had been, my sister's eight years older than me. And my parents had been trying to have kids for eight years after my after they had my sister. And the doctors had finally told her, like, it's not going to happen. We don't totally know why, but at this point, it's, it's not going to happen. So you should look into alternatives. And they were had, they had met this, this little boy who was available for adoption. They had just started the process to adopt him when she found out she was pregnant with me. So my family jokes that I'm the miracle baby. <laughs> Uh, but uh, she was so freaking excited to have me. <laughs> I mean, she adored my sister. She adores, uh, you know, she loved the crap out of both of us. But she really was so grateful to, like, to get to have a kid. And then I think, you know, more than that, um, she, I mean, I think she was terrified that she was going to die and leave a 12-year-old kid with my dad, which, like, you know, again, love him to death, but bless his heart. Like, I I, I would be a different person if I had spent those years uh, <laughs> with a single, a single dad. Um, and so she just... Mm, like, she gave me everything of herself. And if you watch the movie, it's very clear that you're giving everything uh, on the trail in those races to, you know, to get it done. And you speak very candidly about your mom um, and the emotion. And that's certainly a section in the movie where I was crying. But it's it's beautiful to, you know, all these years later, you still have this strong bond. Obviously, the emotion's still there. Like, I think it's a lifelong process to process a loss like this. Um, but what do you, what do you pull from her? What have you pulled from her when you're out there? And it is just so, so much harder to think about, you know, taking the next step than it is even getting to the finish line. Um, you know, she was so proud of me. It didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter whether it was incredible or not. She, she, she literally had, you know, back when we actually sent things in the mail, she had uh, mailing address labels uh, uh, printed up that said, Deb Binney, Jeffrey James Binney, fan club president. And that's what she put on every letter she, she sent anywhere. Um, what was the question? I, I'm already distracted. <laughs> what in the in the times where it's really tough out there, you know, during Leadville, during Rocky Raccoon, and any of the other races you've done, like where it's really you just fall into like a despondency. It's so tough. Um, have you pulled upon her strength or pulled upon her, you know, being in communion with her uh, during those times to push forward? Well, it was just always so fun to make her proud. And that's what it comes down to. And, you know, oh, excuse me. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to talk about running. <laughs> They're like, oh, my gosh, you ran this 100-mile ultramarathon. Like, that must have been so difficult. Tell us about that. And it was. But I think the harder marathon was the filmmaking process. It was absolutely brutal. I had no business making an indie film on my own with the budget that we didn't have. Like I, I, I had no business doing this. And I over and over and over again, brick walls were put up in front of the filmmaking process. And, you know, when I was having the idea of making the film, everyone in the industry I reached out to, they'd give me all kinds of advice. But the one consistent advice was whatever you do, if you start the project, finish it. I don't remember the statistic. It's near 90% of film projects that are started are never finished. And they're like, that's, that's, that's our advice. If you decide to start it, finish it. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have there. There were so many opportunities to quit. And if the subject matter had been anything else other than a film, literally to honor my mom, I would have quit. I, I don't know that I would have gotten it finished, um, but it wasn't an option. 
It wasn't an it wasn't an option. You know, this this whole thing was to honor her, and I cannot imagine <laughs> how I would have lived with myself if if I had given up on that project. Um, so uh, you know, I never felt pressure to to you know. I don't. I, I never felt like I had to win her approval or her her pride. Uh, it was there whether I did something incredible or or pooped on stage. It didn't matter. Like she would have been proud. Um, but I think like those are those moments where I'm like, ah, just get to the finish line. You can do it. She'd love it. Mm. Yeah, that does. Wow. That's don't quit. I think don't quit. And if you, whatever it takes to, to make that connection for you and it was your mom and making the film up with the content based on your mom influencing you to, to get to this point, that desire or that seed that's planted to not quit is now going to, is now going to filter through other things in your life. And it probably already is where you're just like, I am not, not going to finish this podcast with the yogi triathlete team. Like I am not going to do this, but can you see that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that is the, the singular most prevalent lesson I have learned from ultra running is what happens when things get really hard. You know, you get to that point, anyone who's gone for a run, you've gotten to that point where, it's everything hurts. You're not having fun anymore. You're dehydrated. You're every, every logical thing points towards you should stop. But if you willfully refuse to stop, as long as we're not, you know, working on any long-term damage, as long as you can willfully refuse to quit, that's when the magic happens because it turns out that cramp in your leg probably goes away. It turns out you can drink and your dehydration goes away. You can have some sugar and your mood is transformed because now your blood sugar is at a healthy level. And you realize that all those things are temporary. So then when you you hit that wall and you're miserable, and, you know, there's no reason to keep going. You just have to remember that like, well, just do it anyway. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And it just it's consistent through everything in life. Like it has, it has benefited me in so many different arenas to like not stop just because something gets tough. Like that's when it gets good. And that's what sets you apart from everybody else because everybody else is going to quit at that point. Everybody, any, any reasonable person would quit when you reach that point, whether it's running or opening a business or writing a book. That's why films don't get made because people get to that point and they quit because that's what most people would do. And if you can, you know, just stubbornly refuse to be what everyone else is being, that's when you, you, you hit the magic sauce. Mm, couldn't agree more. Uh, we're definitely not most people and you're definitely not most people. Um, I can sense that, but that is, that is the defining moment. Um, we can all agree that it's going to be tough. We can all agree there's going to be challenges. We, we can all agree, like, no matter how much training you do or reading you do or research you do, you're always going to butt up against the moment of resistance where the mind is going to say, mm, not really. There's too many things that say don't do this, but there is that like, crack in the, the window is just like just a little bit open that you need to focus on. And that is what we're all experiencing but I think the the outside community, and this is what we experience, s- seems to think like. But you guys, y- you guys are, you guys are. It's easy for you guys because you 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 can do it. Like you've and you've done it. Well, the only reason we've done it is because, like you, we've butted up against brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. So let's just agree. Let's just agree that we're going to come up against challenges constantly. And when we do that, we kind of nullify the resistance or the stories and beliefs that we build up around it. And we say, well, no, I'm not most people. You're not most people. I'm going to get through this somehow, whether it's this time or the next time or whenever, I don't care. I just feel so strongly about pursuing that, that, uh, that nothing's going to, nothing's going to keep me down. It sounds like you've got another one coming up too with the Pacific crest trail. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 been on my radar since I you know discovered the outdoors and uh, but who can take six months off from work who can you know who, who can do that who can just take six months from life and go do that 
Uh, and I am finally in this unique place where now I, you know, am, am, am primarily making a living from social media and public speaking. And I am in a, I have a husband who is, you know, foolishly totally fine with me going off for, for six months. Um, and so I, why wouldn't I seize the moment? I, I, I could possibly never have, you know, everything could fall apart. I could lose all my sponsorships and I could go back to a nine to five and this could be my only chance. So let's do it. Why not? Why? What are you waiting Literally, for? why not? I mean, there's plenty of reasons why not. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's the thing. There's a thousand reasons always. There's always going to be a thousand reasons to say no. And in fact, those are probably going to be the ones that show up first. But then there's going to be that thing that's like, in that heart of yours. And you're just like, damn, there's that thing again. Like I have to do this and you're going to have wall after wall and barrier after barrier. And you're just going to keep going as long as you can possibly keep going. And and that's the thing. It's, I think we, we all love inspiring stories because we go, Oh, they did it. They won the track meet or they got the scholarship or they made the team. But what we don't see at, you know, after those movies end is like, all the other layers and walls that, you know, these characters, us humans are going to need to, to get over. And, and isn't that what, what life is? And so if you can muster the courage to get through the first wall, you know, you can do the second wall and the third wall, because 10 years from now, you're still going to be navigating the same kind of essence of challenge, but you're just going to take it to different landscapes like the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, when are you thinking about departing on this journey? Well, you know, it, it kind of uh, depends on the weather next winter, for sure. Uh, you know, this this winter on the West Coast, the snowpack is just bonkers, almost universally up and down uh, the West Coast. And so people who start the PCT on the earlier side this year are probably going to have some troubles. They're probably going to encounter some snow in the Sierras. Um, probably April-ish. Uh, th- th- that's not what you asked. <laughs> I will probably try to start in like early April is probably my preferred time. Um, I don't really know in what capacity yet, but we will be documenting it in some way and that really slows things down. So I want to uh, allow for, for, for a little bit of extra time for that, but sometime around uh, April and then I'll you know, hopefully finish in September-ish. Oh, I mean, so you only cool. have a certain amount of time because the snow comes. So, you know, if you're not done, if you're not done by the time the snow comes, you, you don't finish. Yeah. So. Mother nature's running the finish clock. She's like, yeah, exactly. you got, this is your cutoff time. She's but always get out there. And, yeah. Get out there and get after it. Um, and before we wrap this up, I also want to hear about the trips that you do. Um, you're a travel host and I'm thinking that these experiences with you on these trips very much expand that, um, that desire for inclusivity that all are welcome to travel and have an adventure with you. Uh, these trips are, are my main focus right now. I, I, uh, I, I started, the, I started them last year. The first one we did was going to Yellowstone and uh, you know, the, I really was looking at it as like, Oh, what an awesome way to travel for free. That was, that was my motivator. If I'm being purposefully honest, I was like, Oh yeah, like let's, let's do these trips and I'll, I'll get to go and for free. How awesome. And it, it took one, especially the, the, the last trip we went to, to Patagonia in Argentina, and it just took a couple trips for me to realize that, for me at least, it's so much more substantial than that. Because I, I didn't realize, or at least I underestimated how rewarding it would be to watch all these people have these experiences. I mean, it's such a brave thing to do, to go, to, to travel across the world with some random dude from the internet and a bunch of strangers. That's a pretty brave thing to do, seriously. Like, that's, that's I mean, that's a little awkward for me, like, let alone someone who's, like, you know, normal. How terrifying. And then, you know, most of the trips have some sort of physical component to them. Uh, I try to keep them as accessible as possible. I don't want them to be like crazy, you know, elite athlete only uh, trips. Um, and so that's been rewarding too. I mean, like getting everyone to the top of a mountain and us all like, oh, we're just alone on the top of the mountain, but we're also, you know, it, it just takes a couple of days and we all, 
we all bond so much. And here, here we are on top of this mountain, screaming at the top of our lungs, dancing and celebrating because we got to the top of a mountain with a bunch of strangers. But it just, you know, it, uh, there was a man uh, on this last trip, he's 72 years old. And on the day of our biggest hike, uh, one of my good friends who was with us and I, uh, we, we were hiking with he and his girlfriend the most of the day. And we were in the back. We were well in the back. Like by a long shot, we were in the back. And at the end of the day, he came up to both of us and, and thanked us uh, for staying with him. And we were like, mm, what do you mean? Like, of course, like we didn't stay with you. because It wasn't a charity. We weren't staying with you to like help. You didn't need help or it wasn't a charity thing. We were chatting like it was a good time. And so I sat people down for interviews later and I said, hey, would you be willing to, to sit down? And he just talked about how terrified he was to come on the trip because he, he, he just knew it was going to be full of 22-year-olds who were going to be blasting up mountains. And so to get to watch him, like, he got so much confidence from that trip, I think. He is a total badass. And so, like, the, the, it's just, it's, it's turned out to luckily be so much more rewarding for me than I thought it was going to be. And, and so I'm launching a YouTube channel because I have these trips, I have this content, we have all these stories to tell. Uh, and so in, next month we're la- launching a YouTube channel. The first videos are from the Argentina trip. And uh, I, I don't know if you know Katie Zorns. Her her handle is try underscore ing underscore to underscore live trying to live T R I. Uh, she's a plus size triathlete, um, and she was on the trip and and we went kayaking and we had polar opposite experiences kayaking. Uh, I my seat on my kayak broke at the, the the one dangerous part on the course and I fell in the water. It took three guides to come get me back into my my kayak, it was broken, so I had to, like, straddle the kayak the rest of the trip. One of the guides towed our kayak to the end, like, tied his kayak. I mean, it was hilarious. I think God it happened to me and not somebody else because somebody else who 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 has, I don't know, pride <laughs> would have been so embarrassed, but I didn't, I didn't care. It just turned – it was just such a ridiculous, hilarious experience. On the flip side, Katie uh, – Katie, uh, the, the kayak didn't work for her. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it, it didn't, it didn't work for her body type and she ended up not being able to go. And she ended up having the most like heart wrenching, but inspiring experience after that. She, uh, she and her husband, she's, she, you know, she was, she was upset. She got back on the bus. She was crying, you know, how frustrating to, to, to miss out on something like that for that reason. And the bus driver, uh, who spoke zero English, could see that she was upset, and he took them on a tour. He, while we were out kayaking, he took them to different sites, and I mean, he couldn't speak to them, but like they figured out, like he was saying, "Oh, like oh, look at the waterfall," and he like gave them a private tour, and then dropped them off, you know, at the where we finished. Um, but then when he when he dropped us off, he uh, was it the guide. He had one of the guides translate a message to her and like, ugh, wait for the YouTube video. But it's just, it's, it's, it's just so inspiring. <laughs> no, it's just so, he, he just like, he, he just like, he commented on their relationship and like how lovely her husband was and like, oh, you're so lucky to have him because he was so comforting and just like, it was just like, you know, humans, like humans being humans and so i'm so excited to share those stories because they're going. oh my gosh you can't script that stuff so you can't say you can't script to these people like come come on my adventure tours and this is what's going to happen you're going to you know you're going to sit on a bus and you're going to like have an amazing amazing uh up-leveling experience you you just need to provide the environment for these people to be able to stand up to any doubts or fears whether they share with you or not and be able to support them through the growth opportunity that they're going to have, whatever it looks like. So you're providing this environment. It's so beautiful. It makes me, I, so on these, every trip we've taken so far, the people are awesome. Like I, uh, that's one of the first questions people ask me is like, oh, that must be so awkward. Like, what do you do with the weird people or the this people? Um, I, we don't, haven't had that. I haven't had that. And it makes me so proud of the, uh, the community that I've built. To, to know that like random people from my 108,000 followers can be snatched out of that, that group and thrown on a mountain in Patagonia 
and like adore each other, get along, be respectful, be all those things. Like that's awesome. Like my followers are pretty cool. But you're the leader. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. But and it trickles down is what I'm saying. Like this is all because of your energy, whether you put it out there purposefully or not. These people are gravitating towards you. And so that that's okay. And that it started out as a selfish desire to go on these tours. Well, guess what? I'm a coach because I love to train a lot. Like I love to do what I love. So this is affording me the opportunity. And then you have this amazing experience for people. So yeah, back to the Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark and Jeffrey. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have any more Lewis and Clark questions? No. <laughs> no, because I know you need to hop off this call and I'm oh. not going to be responsible for making you late. Uh, uh, but... Well, I can do that myself. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> this has been, uh, yeah, a beautiful experience. And, you know, before we sign off, I love what BJ was touching upon, which is really like, we're all just reflecting each other and um, you're creating a space of inclusivity. And for whatever reason, on some level, people are, are, are feeling that and they're being called to these trips. And, and I can attest as being somebody who leads retreats and, and things like that, that you can't tell them about the life transformative moments they're going to have. You can't put that in the marketing. They just have to follow that hit and go see what's possible and let it come. And you're providing a beautiful space for that. Um, so anybody who's like listening to this going, Oh yeah, no, I'd love to you know, but, but when, you know, maybe <laughs> next year, definitely, or I'm going to put it on the list. What do you have to say to them in a wrap up of this conversation? Well, I stay tuned for my YouTube channel. I get so many DMS from people who are asking questions that I can tell come from a place of insecurity of, I, I want a question I get a lot is what are the ages of the people on the trip? People are worried that they're too old for the trip, that they're too big, that they're too slow, that they're too all kinds of things. And that's what I'm most excited about for the YouTube channel is so that people can see the reality of these trips. They can see who's going on these trips. They can see what we're doing on these trips. And I hope that that takes away a lot of the fear that's keeping people from exploring the world. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. You're basically just spoon feeding the permission to go for it. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you, right, so thank much. you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, um, thank you for having for me. Your, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll all be following your, uh, your adventures forward. Awesome. Thanks guys and gals. 